0: Montezuma's Revenge. Flip screen platforming American style. It's 1200XL episode 10. Hi everybody. Welcome to 1200XL. I'm John. And I'm Aaron. Today Aaron we're going to be about Montezuma's revenge oh Aaron
1: how do you feel about Mexican food oh like, you know I've turned the corner uh boat I, there was a time where I just couldn't stand it mm-hmm. uh, but then I went to Mexico and <laughs> something happened down there I guess I was exposed to the really good stuff yeah and uh it's also i also used to hate tequila so there you go also went to mexico and 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 now I I love tequila and I do like Mexican food. It's not like you can eat everything, but I do mm-hmm. like a lot of it.
0: Yeah, I I, I do think also uh, is 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 oh, time has gone on. I feel like the Mexican food, at least in my my in my mind, it's gotten better. Uh, it's gotten is I've shifted away from just eating Taco Bell and thinking that that was Mexican food. Yeah, uh, and uh, and actually going to Mexican restaurants, I discovered that really I I don't dislike Mexican food. I just dislike Taco Bell. Uh, that is by far my least favorite uh, chain. Although, if you need to get full and you don't have a lot of money, it's the best. It's the yep. best.
1: I don't hate Taco Bell, but, you know, I, and I don't know, I can't remember if you've been, you, have you been to Mexico before proper?
0: No, I've never I, been to Mexico.
1: Mexico was a few foreign countries I've been to. And it's just, I love Mexico. I love mm-hmm. the people down there. They're super duper nice. A beautiful bunch of people. And friendly. And when mm-hmm. I was down there, uh, it was so much fun, and the f- restaurants we ate at were so nice. Uh, now these were the uh, restaurants they would take a, the corporate American like goofs to, you know. So I, but I mean, we went to a couple just like off the cuff restaurants. So it was great. The food was outstanding, fresh and delicious, and I just loved it. And so I kind of keep that thought in my mind when I'm having the Taco Bell. It's like, well, you know, this isn't quite going to cut it. Now, when I visited Houston, uh, they've got just outstanding Mexican cuisine down there as well. You know, just so I mean, it really does Mexican food. I guess every type of food, it varies. You know, know, if you're if you want a five star hamburger, you don't go to McDonald's. You know, if you know it's same thing with Mexican food. So but I mean, yeah, I have turned a corner. The Mexican, uh, the Mexican cuisine, especially when they they bring it out in big buffet style, mm-hmm. God, it was the best. But I, I've never gotten past it, man. Do you have
0: a go-to favorite whenever you head down to the whiskey taco? Uh,
1: it's <laughs> well, I like uh, um, the. Uh, I like the big burritos, of course. Mm -hmm. They've got this stuff Is it chosa, something like that. Sort of like a sausage
0: or a sausage, yeah. Yeah, And I
1: really like that, you know, mixed in. So that's something else I really enjoy. Uh, So, but yeah, a little bit of everything, you know. I'm not Mm -hmm. a huge like greenery guy, but I will say that Mexican food also is probably. I'm the one person that Mexican food's probably healthier for than my normal everyday food. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big
0: fan of the fajitas. I like yeah. when you they bring out the plates and you sort of construct your own thing, and then you just jam it right in your face. I, I like getting a
1: pineapple on there. They've got those mm-hmm. kind of Hawaiian. Oh, yeah. That's good eating. That's yeah. good eating. That's yeah. good eating.
0: Well, Aaron, let's leave this riveting discussion about our favorite Mexican <laughs> foods and talk about this week's game, Montezuma's Revenge.
1: Yeah, uh, which is associated with not a happy dining right. experience. <laughs> You know, it's funny, when we were down in Mexico, they always told us, it's like, listen, uh, don't drink the water down here. You've heard that before. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, because there are local, there's stuff in the water that the locals are used to that we're, our stomachs aren't. Sure. And uh, we used to, they used to make that a point to always bring in your own water and stuff. And it's funny, my uh, my buddy went down there, he brought his own drinks and stuff down, and he still g- ended up getting sick, and it turns out he'd been using the ice. <laughs> he oh. didn't put two and two together. <laughs> so Montezuma's Revenge was not a fun thing for him, that's for darn sure. Yeah,
0: conversely to the digestive the of Montezuma's Revenge, the game Montezuma's Revenge is awesome. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this
0: game was released in the wonderful year of 1984. This is the year when I really feel like arcade machines reached perfection. Yeah. You, you were right on the cusp. I believe that the crash happened towards the end of 1984. So everything was firing all cylinders. You you had, you know, all the, the first generation consoles were out there. The Atari 8 bits were really rocking and rolling. This was a great time to be around and to be a, a video game player. Uh, this thing was published by Parker Brothers. Uh, Parker Brothers, of course, probably most famous for uh, being in the board game business, although I believe that they sold their stake to Hasbro. I don't think Parker Brothers exists as a company anymore, but forever and ever, they were always the company behind. I think they made Monopoly. I think they made Clue. Um, Is is that what you think of when you think of Parker Brothers?
1: Well, I really, I do think of that, but I also do think that they did a lot of game stuff. I believe, I know that they did... uh, I believe that they published, among other things, I think Frogger was one they published, and I remember Empire Strikes Back, I think, was one of theirs.
0: Parker Brothers, because unlike most publishers, they had the wealth of the traditional toy business behind them, they could really seek out the really high-profile, either licensees like the Star Wars games or arcade conversions. So they were the ones that published Frogger, they published Qbert they published Popeye, all of these games came out under the Parker Brothers label on home computers yeah. and, and probably a lot of consoles and stuff, too. Yeah. So, um, you know, the uh, they, they had the jack to get the job done and uh, and they also paid really well. So uh, they published the game, but it was written by a guy named Robert Jager. OK, uh, officially, I believe on the uh, on the cart or on the title screen, it says developed by Utopia Software. Right. But Utopia Software was really Robert Jager and his dad. Um, Robert Jager is uh, he is the classic example of a bedroom programmer. You hear about these guys all the time in the UK, you know, the Oliver Twins and all those guys. But we had them, too, in America. And Robert Jager was one of them. Uh, his first computer was the Bally Astrocade. Remember that one, Aaron? <laughs>
1: We're covering that on ARG next week, I Really? Yes, we what, are. What
0: providence? So um, he got the Astrocade when he was 11 or 12, and uh, he immediately started writing games on it. So he's one of these kids that sees the potential in writing games, and that excites him much more than just sitting around playing games like me and you. Um, he started writing games immediately in assembly. Or no, I think he started in basic. And, he, uh, and when he was 11 or 12, he started getting games published in the Bally Astrocade magazine. So can you imagine being an 11 or 12-year-old kid and pub- having published full listings of programs in this magazine? Pretty yeah, incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, you know, after a while, he sort of... He saw the writing on the wall for the Astrocade. He saw that it was starting to age, and he really wanted to get into the Atari computers. He saw the potential... <laughs> In the Atari, he saw how much more advanced it was than the Astrocade, and so he got his parents to buy him an Atari 800, and immediately he went to work. He went to work. His first game, his first commercially released game, Aaron, he was 14 years old. (laughs) Uh, It was called Chomper. And it was it wasn't a clone of Pac-Man. It was more like an homage of Pac-Man, where it was uh <laughs> it was uh Pac-Man had to do other things besides just avoid ghosts. Uh, so it wasn't a direct ripoff. But his mistake was that he made the main character look exactly like Pac-Man, and as a result of that, no major publishers wanted to touch it because they were afraid of, of of getting sued. So he got it published through a small uh, local mom and pop type publisher. And uh, that was sort of a, that was sort of his his entry into the world of uh, of games, and so they did it did okay. Uh, just like most publisher or most uh, developers you talk to, they they don't make a lot of money because everybody owns the game, but nobody buys the game. If you know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. So uh, anyway, that that but he made just enough money to keep going. So his next uh, his next project was called Pinhead Aaron, and this is not the Pinhead from the Hellraiser. Uh, stupid stupid
1: stupid character <laughs> i always thought that was the least imp- impressive character bad guy here comes pinhead run Pinhead's pinhead you're not wrong, you're you're not wrong. Me, pinhead
0: <laughs> <laughs> well this was actually another this was another homage to the arcade game kickman have you played kickman aaron
1: uh, yes, actually, I have played Did You're talking about the clown on the unicycle. Yeah, that's Yeah, I right. love that game. Absolute great game.
0: Yeah, it is. It didn't really light the arcade world on fire, but it's one of those games that you go back to, and it it should have did better than it did because it's it's actually a really fun game. So anyway, he wrote Pinhead, and, and he was getting ready to publish it, but at the same time, he really wanted to do something that was like a showcase of everything that the Atari 800 could do at the time, or the Atari, you know, line of computers could do. And so he started working on this project. And uh, he got the idea of the uh, the project from his friend. Uh, he, the, and his friend uh, basically said, um, you know, why don't you make a game uh, about, uh, you know, starring a, uh, a with a Mesoamerican theme called Montezuma's Revenge? And he's like, "All right, that sounds good. Uh, apart <laughs> from that, like, yeah. he that that was all that was all that <laughs> that, that was all the That's the crazy. push that he
1: needed." <laughs>
0: so, uh, so anyway, he went on and and, uh, and 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 created Montezuma's Revenge, and he was working on it, and he had the game mostly done. And at this point, uh, his dad saw, okay, obviously my kid's got talent. Uh, he actually arranged for a booth. Or uh, part of a booth. It was actually more of a table, I think, hearing him tell the story of, um, <laughs> yeah. of, uh, of 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 um, you know, it's CES. Okay, so they were actually sharing a booth with a blank VHS tape manufacturer.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> you can imagine that.
0: But anyway, uh, he brought Kickstarter, or I'm sorry, he brought Pinhead with him, and he brought uh, Montezuma with him. And obviously, when Parker Brothers sauntered by, they didn't give uh, you know uh, uh, Pinhead the time of day. But they really, they really liked Montezuma. They thought this was this was a great game, and they they love to publish it. So, um, luckily, unlike so many uh, developers, uh, uh, Robert and his dad actually negotiated a licensing agreement, which allowed the license to revert back to Robert and his dad, back to Utopia after a certain amount of time, and also pays royalties on all the different versions of Montezuma that were sold. So every Atari 2600 version, every ZX Spectrum version. Yeah. Yeah. So, this ended up, I mean, he didn't get rich out of the deal, but again, he was 16 years old. And you know, when you're 16, relatively small amounts of money seem like a million dollars. So he made himself enough money to buy himself a brand new Pontiac Trans Am for his 17th birthday. I mean, so he was, he was, he was living the good life. Yeah, Um, And, uh, but the problem was, was that he, he really, he was sort of an introvert. He didn't like to talk about, you know, he, he didn't, Everybody wanted to interview him, all the local news and everything, and he really... He he regrets a little bit the 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 fact that he didn't really sell himself more during this time period because if he could have achieved the same sort of um you know cachet that a group like the Oliver Twins did I mean obviously the Oliver Twins were like the the polar opposite where you can find all kinds of news clippings and TV interviews with them when yeah. they were kids even when they used <laughs> that yeah and they used that to catapult their image their image became just as big of a selling point as the game absolutely and. and yeah, and with Robert, unfortunately, things didn't go that way. Uh, lots of things conspired against Robert. Actually, you know, it was it was basically you had right after you know Montezuma, you have the the fall of '84, you have the big crash. Everybody's getting out of games, and also you're also reaching the end of kind of the commercial lifespan in the United States of the eight bit Atari computer. Uh, by 1985, you know, the ST was coming out, and everybody was focused on the future. Uh, Robert wanted to continue on in the future. Uh, he actually, uh, bought a Commodore Amiga uh, when it was released, because he no was kid. blown away by the uh, by the graphical prowess. So obviously, if you look at an Amiga compared to an Atari 800, it's it's like night and day in terms yeah. of the, the graphical fidelity. He did start a couple projects, but he never finished them. Uh, by this time, he he went into college and he actually went on to uh, have a, a pretty successful career in the financial industry, uh, doing different you know financial technology programming and things like that. So he ended up doing okay. He still has lots of fond memories of. Montezuma's Revenge, and actually, he released a uh, a game uh, for the Game Boy Advance and the PC, uh, another Montezuma's game, and uh, it uh, unfortunately it didn't do too too well. This was a thing where he basically just gave somebody the the name, and uh, he started out with the concept, but by the time it was finished, it didn't uh, you know it didn't really match his what what he thought it would be, and and it just kind of it just kind of blew away. So anyway, that's some some background. All right, Aaron, it's time to talk about the actual game. We've heard about the background. We've heard about the development. What is this game? Now, Aaron, you're sort of an expert when it comes to these flip screen platformers. Not only do you know a lot about them, but you actually enjoy them. So, Aaron, tell us about what you do in Montezuma's Revenge.
1: I don't know if I'd call myself an expert, Bo, but I do enjoy them. That's for darn sure. Uh, I think you summed this up real well in, the, in your open when you mentioned this being an uh, the American answer to the flip screen uh, adventure platform, because that's exactly what this is. Uh, you play as Panama Joe, which he gets named on some of the boxes, and so on some of the boxes he doesn't get named. But you are basically an explorer, and you're going down uh, through the pyramid here to get Montezuma's treasure. Now, as you go through the uh, all these different levels... You're going to come across doors that need to be open, which means you have to find the keys. And you're going to find enemies you have to vanquish, so occasionally you'll have to find a sword. But for the most part, you're dodging and jumping across chasms and platforms that appear and reappear, uh, avoiding bouncing skulls and spiders on your way down through the obstacles. It's a great game. Uh, And one of the things that make it so much fun is the exploration aspect of it. Uh, it's just fun to go down through all the different levels. The levels are real cleverly done. But this isn't a game like, say, a flip screen like you would play uh, like a, uh, uh, um, you know, something like a Manic Miner where it's like so blindingly difficult that you just repeatedly get killed over and over. I feel like this game gives you a fair shake when you go through these levels. Uh, you can tell what you're supposed to do. You can see it, and it's not you're not totally bombarded. This is like the thinking man's uh, version of those sorts of games where you've got some time to contemplate your moves. as yeah, you Yeah, and, and one of the through. interesting
0: stories about the development of this game is it wasn't always the case. Uh, originally, Robert Jaker programmed a bat to enter and sort of uh, move you along uh, if if you uh, if you were taking too long to uh, to to determine your 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 way through a, a particular screen. However, that was one of the things that Parker Brothers took out of the game in order to save space, so they could fit it on a smaller cartridge. Um, I think that this game is uh, one of the things that makes it different than uh, the, uh, you know, Jet Set Willy or Manic Mine or a game like that is that you have the, the jumps are not nearly as precise. You have a lot more wiggle room in terms of the jumps. Uh, a lot of times they make the jumps more difficult by putting in conveyor belts. Uh, so you actually, you have to take those movements into consideration. But the the biggest thing is that it's just, there's just not as much stuff to contend with. Even you know, if you hit an enemy and you die, that enemy disappears and you don't have to yes. deal with the enemy anymore. So, this is, you know, it's, it, I don't think it's it's necessarily correct to call it a thinking man's, you know, flip screen platformer because you definitely have to do a lot of thinking and manic minor. Uh, but it's, it's, it's less just like rote memorization of exact combinations That's, of moves to get through it. It's and more it's contemplative. More, it, it runs yeah, at, a, it, at a
1: pace where you can sit back and just, and, consider your your travels through this maze
0: right and and much more emphasis is placed on exploration you know in a game like manic minor you're working your way from the beginning to the end in this game you have to backtrack you have to do different things it's almost more like dizzy in that regard if you're if we're making comparisons to to, to british style games although it is much more the, the platforming is much much better than it is in the dizzy games
1: well you know a, a dizzy is a lot more puzzle oriented as well yeah you know this what this reminds me of uh, to a certain degree is like your basic old school first edition of pitfall Mm -hmm. you know in a lot of ways you're yes i mean you're if you take these screens as single screens and look at the obstacles you're jumping over snakes you're jumping over uh items that move you're jumping over items that don't move you're jumping over pits uh, stuff like that, and uh, that's so uh, the comparison I could see to a, a sort of like an original pitfall. you will also go down into parts of the uh, of the pyramid where you won't have where there it'll be dark. There won't be any lights. That gets real tricky uh, mm-hmm. down in that area uh, when you're trying to navigate your way through. Now I had mentioned uh, earlier. I this this week was the first time I successfully got to the treasure. I'd never done it before uh, in all the years I've been playing this game. it's funny because I just sat down. You know, I don't play games like I used to. I've always been a guy who just picks up a stick and just runs in like an idiot. And I actually sat down and as I played this, I'm like, okay, I always don't have the keys I need. Where are the keys I need? Where do I need to go? And once you understand where everything is, uh, and you can, and you understand what you need to unlock, it does. It really did. It sort of opened the game up for me, so I could tell where I was supposed to go. But aside from the thinking aspects, we're just trying to figure out, make a plan as to where you need to get keys from. The jumping elements in this are great. And one of the things that make it great are the spot-on controls. Mm-hmm. This isn't going to be one of those games where you complain uh, about the looseness of the stick or, the, or any sort of delay. This game is uh, very tight with its controls. And you're doing a lot of kind of uh, nutty stuff. Aside from jumping on just, uh, you know, normal pl- platforms, you're running over conveyor belts. You're jumping on and off things that disappear, You're going on ropes. You're jumping from rope to rope. You're going up and down ropes that are on fire. So the ropes are going away. Uh, So there's a lot of variety there that makes the game interesting. And you sort of feel like an Indiana Jones or something as you're rolling deeper and deeper into these tombs because you really don't know what to expect, Boat, which makes that's all part of the fun.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, speaking of what to expect when you play this game, if you didn't own the original cartridge back in the day and you are playing this via emulation, You've got to be careful about which version you're actually playing, because there are two versions of the game out there. Uh, There is the officially released 16K cartridge version of the game, which of course has been dumped by now, and that's the the Parker Brothers released version. And then there's an unreleased prototype version of the game. This is the version of the game that was shown at CES, and these two games have very significant differences. Uh, One difference is that uh, the the original version, the CES version, has a really nice animation Animated title screen. Whenever you get an extra life, a big extra life thing pops up, and uh, it's it's a very cool sort of uh you know uh, a cool sort of effect. Not unlike when you get an extra life in a universal game, it's almost like a little cutscene, although it's not animated. Yeah. Um, there's also an opening theme. I believe it's Spanish Flea by Herp Albert and the Tijuana Brass. Yes. Uh, that of course is not present in the 16K cartridge version. But the biggest difference is that the prototype version actually features a boss battle with a large, uh, you know, Mesoamerican statue. And uh, and unfortunately, because it was a demo version, uh, Robert didn't actually program a way to beat the boss. He couldn't. He he hadn't gotten that far yet. And of course, he wasn't. He was asked to actually make a game that was less. Than the prototype that he made so it would fit within those space constraints uh so the prototype version is in fact unbeatable
1: that's you know it's funny I, it's, uh i have not seen that boss until we were watching some of the prototype footage earlier and that's crazy. I was I was like, wow, look at that nutty thing. So that's, that's neat. It's weird that the prototype is more than than what got released. But you can understand it for in terms of compressing it onto a cartridge. That much said, the stuff that they ditched, it doesn't affect the overall no. fun of the game. No. The little Spanish Flea uh, song will play when you do certain things in the game. Also, one of the things I like, the little touch when uh, Panama Joe falls on his head, And his little legs are are like—it's very comical. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it's
0: very calm. This is a game that has those little touches, you know. And this is this is a very—you know—I almost consider this to be a—you know—a Japanese style game in terms of the amount of detail that they put in the little animations, the little musical cues. It's actually La Cucaracha that plays whenever you pick up an item in this game. Um, You know, it and the the way that this game controls—it's like a prototype for a game like Super Mario Brothers. Now, of course, these games were not related in any way. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not like Miyamoto played Montezuma's Revenge uh, and then programmed Super Mario Brothers. But right. people in tandem around the world, I think, were starting to get a handle on the right way to do a jumping platformer. And... Um, and this is an example of, of of just that. I mean, I really, really like the way that your guy, uh, you know, that the Panama Joe, coincidentally, he started out as Pedro. That was his first name. And then and then they changed his name to Panama Jack. But of course, Panama Jack, they didn't realize was actually a branded character for, I guess, a, a clothing uh, line. So they had oh, to change yeah. it finally to, to Panama Joe. Um, but I kind of uh, like but,
1: Pedro myself. Yeah, I'm, Pedro I, is pretty cool. Yeah.
0: So, um, but anyway, uh, the um, this game is, I really think that it's, it's sort of the first modern platform game that I can think of. I mean, 1984. I can't think of anything, because Pitfall, this is obviously an evolution of Pitfall. Yeah. Uh, Pitfall, I believe, came out in 1982, maybe 1983, Um, but this takes it to the next level on every level, Um, but uh, and it really hones in on the the exploration and the controls, and nothing ever feels too frustrating, and that's a big deal for me. I'm just not one of these people that likes to beat themselves up. Over games, you know, I'm definitely not a fan of the kind of flip screen platformers like you see, like Your Money on the Run, like Your Jet Set Willy stuff like that. This is a completely different game than that, although they are in the same genre.
1: I, you know, I like both. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm not. First of all, I, I was always a big fan of this game. You know the Atari had a a, a, a wealth of great platform games because this is right. You you also had your stuff like your Minor Twenty Forty Nine and your Jumpman's, right. mm-hmm. and and the funny thing about it, if you look at those three titles as examples, they're totally unrelated. I mean they live beside each other in harmony. There's really, I mean, yeah, you jump in them, you know, but I mean ultimately they're totally different games, and they're each they each bring something special to the table. This game brought the big, beautiful graphics uh, to the table. And I I like the fact that you look over these different rooms and they unfold and you look and there's so much stuff going on. There's fire, conveyor belts, invisible stuff. There's just all kinds of stuff. It's almost like going to a kid's playground. You just get excited. You're like, look at all this stuff I get to do in this level. This came out around about the same time that Pitfall 2 came out. And Pitfall 2 was a natural progression of the first one. But if you compare these two games, and I love Pitfall too, don't get me wrong. But I mean, this game took the Pitfall two or Pitfall one thing and and amped it up. So I agree with you. This is an evolution, and this does feel um this does have the feel of a more modern platformer now when you compare these to the european stuff i mean obviously we, we both both sides of the pond have a different way of doing stuff mm-hmm. uh, and there are some things i really love about the european uh, games you know stuff like that they have i wish this had named rooms and stuff right. like that that would make it a lot more fun because you can get into it a little bit more but i you know i it goes back to what you want do you want sort of a laid back sort of game or do you want something that's that's a uh, just crush soul crushing you know i'm gonna opt for
0: not soul crushing myself well most
1: people commercially in the states you would never release manic minor ever that would never get a release and i mean it might get released but no one would buy it right because it's just too people have. well i mean and and,
0: and again the question comes was the only reason why it sold in europe was because it was the only thing there you know well they were i I don't know you can't discount you can't discount the the you know number one You've got sort of a, a you you've got the name behind the project, you know whether it's you know Matthew Smith or whatever. You've got the magazine coverage. You've got the fact that this is a homegrown deal. This is a guy from your country making games. These are teams from your country making games on a computer that you have because most of the people you know they're playing spectrums and they're playing stuff like that. So there's a certain amount of you know eating your own dog food that goes on with things well. like that, and. Uh, you can't discount the fact that there's also, you know, people, the, the games over there were cheap, you know, like three ninety nine, dollars $4.99. And I guarantee you, uh, Parker Brothers wasn't selling Montezuma's Revenge for $4.99. This was a full-priced game.
1: Well, I think, I mean, listen, I think Manic Myers is, is a stone cold classic. I'm not going to lie because it puts you in a different place than this does. Again, yeah, we're a con- bad place. No, if you, yeah, exactly. If you can, uh, it's another game that you, if you compare it to Jumpman or this or My 24 Night, it's, it, it's, there is no comparison. It's its own game. It stands on its own. And what, it just goes in a different route. And I like that. I mean, it brings something out of you. But this game, I also love. This is the kind of game you have to be in the right mood to play. Manic Miner in twenty twenty one, right? This is the kind of game. It's a laid back, easy to play game. It got ported a lot of stuff. You could play it on like a, a ColecoVision. got a port. Some other ports, C sixty four, and but it's a it's a fun game. It's the characters are big and beautiful looking, and it just it's a more it's an easier to approach than a game like yeah. Manic now, Miner. Or Jet Set um
0: Utopia Software was approached by Nintendo. To add this to the opening lineup of NES games. Wow. Uh, when the around the time the console was released. Uh, unfortunately, um, they were not offering the kind of money that Parker Brothers were. Uh, and so he turned them down. Uh, the, he says that this was one of the biggest mistakes of his life.
1: How do you think <laughs> In this would interview. have fair to that opening lineup boat?
0: Oh, I think it would have held its own. Because remember, you know, the NES, the thing about the NES is that out of the box, you know, you're really pushing the abilities of the system with a game like this. I mean, Super Mario Brothers was the 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 pinnacle of what you could do with standard right. NES hardware. After that, they started figuring out ways to add chips to the cartridges to enhance the ability of the NES. So, this was this would have fit right in, especially if you look at some of those early Famicom games that didn't get a US release. Right. Uh this would have fit right in with some
1: of those. But could this I mean, could this stand beside a Mario?
0: Well, it couldn't have stood beside a Mario, but it could have sl- stood, you know, slightly to the left and under Mario. Can you see
1: a? Can you see a future uh, when the, if this game had gotten released on the NES, where you would have had uh, Montezuma Strikes Back or Montezuma Oh, absolutely, Drubin's because Drubin. you
0: know once you, once the money started coming in, because guess what? The difference is when you release a game on the NES versus on a computer. A hundred percent of the people that buy that that play the game have bought it. You know, you yeah. don't have the piracy issues that you have on the computers. So you're getting all this money coming in and Nintendo starts coming around saying, hey, when are you going to do Montezuma 2? And bam, there you go. And who knows, Montezuma 2 probably would have looked a whole lot more like a modern 8-bit Nintendo style platformer than the first the first edition.
1: You know, I'll t- I will say the poor fellow who didn't make that deal. No one knew. No one could no. possibly know. And and, of, and uh, everybody that was Nintendo in everybody was in, in the
0: industry at the time thought Nintendo was insane for yeah. trying to market another games console. In so the States, they, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was and madness. so um, and so and like uh, like you said, uh, you know they they offered nothing as far as advances or guaranteed sales. So you know it, they they weren't exactly you know offering in the sun and the moon and the stars. So um, but you know that's that's just how life goes. Yeah. Now I'll tell you something interesting about this game, Aaron. In 2013, uh, this was the sort of when, when AI was, was sort of not really, you know, making a big splash, but this was modern AI was starting to happen. And they were trying to program AI to play several different Atari 2600 games. And uh, they made algorithms which could learn to play lots of different Atari 2600 games, but it failed on both Montezuma's Revenge and Pitfall. Now, it's pretty clear why that is. When you're, when you're teaching AI to play something like Asteroids, it's infinitely easier to write code to say, you know, blow up the things as they come to you yeah. versus negotiating, you know, multiple enemies on screen doing different things, different behaviors. Uh, however, uh, in 2016, uh, Google DeepMind uh, did learn to play Montezuma's Revenge. Uh, they programmed something called Artificial Curiosity into the AI, and they were able to uh, to, to to defeat uh, Montezuma's Revenge. That's amazing
1: finally. to think about, that, that a computer could do it on its own. I mean, because yeah. there's a lot of, I mean, of course, I guess it would be immune to the timing issues and whatnot, but there's a, this game has a lot of stuff where the timing is real important and, yeah. and, and consideration as to your next move. And so <laughs> that, that's a sort of scary, Boat. It is, uh, to, it is. To be completely honest with you.
0: Now, Aaron, before we uh, before we leave uh, Montezuma, we should probably talk about some of the different ports that were available for the system. Of course, this came out on both the uh, the, the Atari eight bits, the C sixty four, the ZX Spectrum, where it was just known simply as Panama Joe. Uh, but there is also a version of this game called Montezuma Redux that was released in twenty twenty. Okay, and uh, Montezuma Redux uh, was a a fan project that uh, added a new explorer character, new skulls, new snakes, a new spider with separate spites, uh, new objects, animated swords and keys, modified walls. I mean, they've really taken the, the 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 bones of this game and and updated it with all of the advances in Atari 8-bit programming that have happened over the past you know twenty plus years. Uh, I, I played a little bit of this. I'm going to go back to it for sure. It's such a joy because it's the same game that we know and love, but you know it has all these little upgraded graphical t- uh, tweaks. There are some small differences in gameplay, although I, I didn't really notice them because I don't know this game backwards and forwards. But if you have an Atari 8-bit and you're a fan of the original game, this is a free you know free download. You can find it on Indie Retro News. Um, check it out. Down, give it a download. It's a lot of fun.
1: It looks they've they've ch- definitely changed some of the textures. They've animated mm-hmm. all the items. They've Panama Joe looks uh, entirely different. Yeah, uh, than he does. You know, I'm looking at this, uh, and I'm not. I have to. I have to sit here and play it and decide if I can if I can handle it because I've gotten so used to the old graphics. I'm not sure mm-hmm. I can go to the the kick. You cool know what guys. this reminds
0: me of, Aaron? This reminds me of if this game would have come out on the NES. It probably would have looked more similar to this in terms of the sprite character himself. There's a lot more definition there that the NES could probably handle in a way that the Atari couldn't. It's a lot like Super Pitfall. You know, we played that on the Coco. It also got an NES release. It's a game that appeared on the NES but really seemed out of time, you know, in terms of what what was going on at the same time. But yeah. in terms of a, you know, day one NES release as part of the Black Box series, I could definitely see a game like Redux coming out there.
1: Absolutely, Boat. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Now, um, we, as far as I can tell, we did not get any reviews for Montezuma's Revenge uh, on our Discord channel. But uh, this game, of course, reviewed very, very well in all of the major publications of the day. Uh, it's fondly remembered there is a, uh, a Montezuma's Revenge Facebook group that Robert posts on, I guess, uh, at some point in the past, he actually has created a um, a cabinet, a stand-up cabinet, Montezuma's Revenge Arcade Cabinet, for, uh, you know, I guess just for MAME or whatever. Uh, but uh, it has a bunch of artwork and stuff on it, and it was actually inspired by Mark Sunshine. Mark Sunshine is the, game, the name of the guy who appears on every title screen. He's the guy that gave Robert the idea to uh, create Montezuma's Revenge. Pretty cool. Yeah, neat. Uh, and then there's just a, another couple of things, uh, two interviews that if you are interested in hearing from Robert himself, more detail that we couldn't go into in this episode. Uh, one is the excellent, excellent Antic Uh, podcast, Atari 8-bit podcast, hosted by Kay Savitz. He interviewed Robert, I believe, back in 2017, and uh, a lot of the material, a lot of the the, the anecdotes and stuff we talked about came from that interview. And then also Digital Press uh, has an interview with uh, Robert that they ran on their website that is also quite good. So there's a lot out there, a lot we didn't cover in terms of the background and everything. If you want to hear more from Robert, those are two great places to find those things. Mm. All right. So, that's going to do it for this episode of 1200XL. Um, We are going to be covering, Aaron, another classic next time. We're going to be doing a little game I like to call Archer McLean's Drop Zone. Oh, all right. That's right. That's right. So, uh, we will see you next time for that. And until then,
1: make sure you play your Atari today.